Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm Rolo Tomasi. I'm TJ. Are you going to do that every time now? A little, like, intro shtick there? Hey, yeah, I thought, it was, it. I thought it was one of our uh, one of our bits. Can you say get away with it as in, like, neither of you are here to physically stop me? Or gets away with it, like, pulls it off? Pulls it off. You, oh, you, there you, are, okay. you are Rolo Tomasi. You, oh, thank you. you. Get away with it. Let me let me be clear. I'm not criticizing. I'm just asking. Like I just want to. I just want to know. I I, I think so. I, I put a lot of effort into planning those. You know. Okay. I, ju- well, I don't. I take about ten it's... seconds. But. <laughs> well, you can. Ne- you can't tell. It looks like you plan that the whole week, and then you just you just deliver. And I I can't wait. I'm like I can't wait till we record so I can drop this Rolo Tomasi line. <laughs> this is serious film, people. A podcast about movies nominated for best picture. And this is our ongoing series on the movies nominated for Best Picture in 1997. 1997 movies, 1998 ceremony. Was that the 70th Academy Awards, Ken? That is correct. Yeah, I had watched 70 of them. You cuddled up with... You cuddled up... TVs weren't even around when the first Oscars aired, so you did not cuddle up and watch the first Oscars. Unless you were there. No, the I was... Yeah, no, I was I was a busboy. Oh, Okay. <laughs> A seat filler. Well, they didn't have seat fillers because they weren't televised <laughs> yeah, back then. Just, Whatever. Just a dinner uh, with some really bad chicken, I might add. It was... <laughs> this is off to a great start. This is our episode on L.A. Confidential, the fourth movie uh, alphabetically nominated for Best Picture in 1997. Um, and this movie's awesome, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, I think – I was trying to think of when I first saw this, and I know it was after I moved to L.A., which was in 2015, but – uh probably shortly after that it's probably like 2015 2016 i think i've seen it probably five or six times and it really gets better every time uh this this was this was not the reason why i picked 1997 but it was probably this the second biggest reason why i picked 1997 the biggest reason maybe being next week but stay tuned for that the the most Uh, titanic reason Stop it, Ken. Do you remember when you first saw Ellie Confidential, or have you seen it a lot? What's uh, what's your what's your story? Uh, I I don't actually remember the first time I ever saw the movie. It, it was probably early on in high school, um, and it it probably had to do with me trying to to tackle some best picture nominees, even at that point, some or, or prominent films that I thought I should watch. And obviously, the film we'll talk about next week, everyone had pretty much seen. Uh, when we were growing up and yeah. so yeah you automatically the instinct was to take a look at some of the other films that were coming out around that time period um, and I've seen it every few years although I was telling TJ before you jumped on and we started recording um, I realized sitting through this earlier today and watching the film it's probably been at least I don't know four or five years since I think I sat down and watched it I've got a copy and I really love the movie but it's been a minute since I actually you know, watched it. So uh, this was this was a nice revisit. Same. I mean, I- I've seen it in the last few years for sure, but like it's such a complicated story that like a lot of it is kind of new. Like I remember, I-, I remember like the the big reveals at the very end, but like the first act is really convoluted and like yeah. there's a pretty complex web of stuff going on. So like I'm still, even though I've seen it like four or five times at this point, watching it for this week, I'm like. I don't really know where some of this is going. Like, I I can't remember how this is resolved. So it, it was a it was a good watch for me too. TJ, how about you? I think I saw this in high school around the time that you know Josh. You often talk about like when you're d- discovering good movies and you go the back formative and formative years. There you go. Yes. 
And this was in one of those large books, like coffee table books I had that was the 101 greatest films of all time. And I think this was like 97th mm. or something. And that book came out in like 2000-ish. So it was, it was pretty fresh and it was in there. Um, so I saw it high school times. And then another time in there, maybe another time in my early 20s. And then it was the first film I watched in my new house. I bought a house about a year ago. And the first night I stayed there, I watched LA Confidential. Why? I'm not sure. Fantastic. But it, it now has that special place. So then when I watched it earlier today, it was maybe the sixth-ish time. I did endeavor to read the novel before we recorded, but I've got about a hundred pages left, so I'm not I'm not done with it. Um it's a five hundred page novel, so it's pretty uh pretty girthy that one. We will talk about James Elroy. In fact, we can talk about James Elroy right, right now. Okay. Um, well, first of all, how do, what do you think so far of the first 400 pages you've read? I prefer the movie. And here's why. The book is... Now, I had seen the movie, so I came in with not fresh. And the book is incredibly dense with detail. Yes. I've heard. And the movie, so is the movie the movie is as well, but the movie, and I'll talk more about this later, such a great adaptation because mm-hmm. especially once you've read the book, just being like, wow, how they found the movie in this. And it's not an adaptation where it's like, oh, I read it and I'm just going to pull these general ideas. Like, you know, there will be blood being based off oil, that sort of thing. Like it's, it's a pretty faithful adaptation, but it really finds a through line and roots through important details, cuts a ton of characters, but still has 80 speaking parts in it. So mm. the the adaptation is a pretty Herculean task that I think was was pulled off quite well. Also, the novel is very, very stylized. It has, uh, it, it, each part is kind of punctuated by newspaper clippings or internal memos and police reports. And one of the things, again, that I think the film does really well in the adaptation is it tones down a lot of the hard-boiled dialogue. There's there's some great dialogue in the film, but the, like the Dudley Smith character in the book is so like <laughs> Mick Irish cop stereotype, whereas I think Cromwell rides it like just enough that it's there, but he doesn't overdo it. And but it's still James Cromwell. James Cromwell brings a little of gravitas. Oh yeah, he's that he's I great. He's great. Be there and on the, the page. And there's just a, a whole lot of that throughout that I think they take. They do a really nice job of like, oh, that's good, but let's just turn it from like twelve down to eight, maybe. Mm. Which is, I think, good because there, there are some lines that I'm not sure land all that well on screen or in performance, um, and so pulling back on that a little bit. I mean, this it, it's not that this film isn't stylized, but I think the film does a pretty good job of not allowing itself to become distracted by the setting that it's trying to fit into. Yeah. And more on this later, the restraint with the stylization is something that I at once admire and I'm a bit frustrated by. So there's a little tease for three hours from now. <laughs> yeah. I want to mostly put a pin on the adaptation stuff. Cause I do want to talk about that. Cause this did win best adapted screenplay at the Oscars. And I want to talk about like the adaptation of it all, but um, let's start by saying like what this movie is. It's kind of complicated. Um, this is a neo-noir crime film caper with murder and conspiracy and cover-ups and police corruption and prostitution rings and drug smuggling and the whole nine yards. Uh, it follows three cops, Ed Exley, who's like a Boy Scout by the book, uh, a bit of a climber, you know, ambitious kind of cop, but like, you know, uh, you know, 
not really respected by his peers because he's kind of a brown noser and like may not be the guy you want watching your back because he's watching his own back, that kind of thing. That's uh, that's Guy Pierce. Uh, there's Bud White, who is a kind of hothead, violent, loose cannon, uh, unpredictable kind of guy. That's uh, Russell Crowe. And then you got Jack Vincennes. Is April, that right? Yep. Yep. Vincennes. Okay. I'll just make sure I say it right. Jack Vincennes, who is a narcotics detective who has a streak for, you know, publicity and glamour. And might be more concerned about that than getting collars. And that is played by Kevin Spacey. And the movie's got a pretty busy, complicated plot, as I've already alluded. But the main narrative thrust is surrounding the investigation of a robbery slash multiple homicide at the Night Owl Coffee Shop. Um, And among the victims was Dick Stensland, who was a cop who was Bud White's, uh, Russell Crowe's partner, and was recently fingered by Ed Exley. And Jack Vincennes for his role in like a prisoner brawl. So like Stensland had recently been fired by the LAPD and then he was killed with a bunch of other people at the Night Owl. And then most of the movies, them kind of like uncovering this sprawling plot um, of conspiracy and cover ups to do with the Night Owl murders and like what's really being covered up, who's behind it all, etc. Good stuff, you know, a detective story. And um I, I note that it's a, it's a sprawling plot with multiple disparate storylines that all funnel together towards a conclusion in a really satisfying way, I think. So, this was directed by Curtis Hansen. TJ, you seen any Curtis Hansen movies? I have seen Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys? Ken? Yeah. And I think that's I, it. Uh, I've seen The River Wild, and I've seen LA Confidential, and that is it. Also, I think he produced The Big Year. But that's not a, one of his directing works, so that doesn't really count here. Uh, I've seen Eight Mile, the Marshall Mathers vehicle, which I think is very good. Uh, R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. And so, yeah, he made R- The River Wild. He made Wonder Boys. He made Eight Mile. He made In Her Shoes. He passed away in 2016. R.I.P. Curtis Hansen. Uh, the River Wild. Let me tell you about The River Wild. I saw the last five minutes of The River Wild while giving blood at Slough High. Do you guys ever give blood at Slough High? <laughs> Uh, I don't think I ever did at SLU High. I did during high school, okay. but I don't know if I did at SLU. I don't think I did. Well, it was really fun because you got to get out of class for like, you know, 40 minutes or something like that. And you get to sit there and watch whatever movie they have playing while you wait your turn. Then you get to do the thing and give blood. And then you get to sit there and watch the movie they have playing while you recover and eat cookies. And uh, one time I saw the last five minutes of The River Wild without any context at all. But I know that it has <laughs> Brad Pitt. I know that Bob Redford narrates it. I think maybe. No, uh, you're you're thinking you're of thinking, the river runs through it. I was gonna say yeah, that's the river runs oh, through it. River I'm Wild not is in the river wild when I'm talking about the river runs through it. Yeah, okay. no, the river wild. The river the, wild's a Kevin Bacon Meryl Street that's movie, right. right? Okay, it's a I have seen a few minutes of that too on like TV. I think because I used that. I, I used to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon in class in high school, and I used Meryl Streep and John C. Riley. And Kevin Bacon in that movie. Uh, like, I hadn't seen it, but that was like a good linchpin for me. Because I know a lot of John C. Riley and a lot of Meryl Streep movies. There's a further connection. It's Curtis Hansen, but Meryl Streep's husband in that film, if I recall correctly, is played by David Strathairn. Oh. Who is in this film, obviously. I'm never mad to see David Strathairn in anything. He's great. I agree. Yeah, yeah he, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant character actor. I enjoy seeing him just about anything he pops up in. Okay, TJ, you eager beaver. Now we can talk about James Elroy, if that's okay with you. Wanted to talk about him sooner. Well, if so that's okay is... with you, yeah, I'll jump oh. in. <laughs> don't don't throw my words back at me. 
Uh, real quick, uh, he wrote the novel upon which this movie is based, also called L.A. Confidential, which was part of, uh, I don't know if it's an official or unofficial, L.A. Quartet of books, which included The Big Nowhere, White Jazz, and The Black, da- and the Black Dahlia, which was made into a movie directed by Brian De Palma in 2006 that nobody seemed to like. I didn't see it, but got mixed to poor reviews. It's a bit much. It's a bit heavy-handed and... I- yeah, it's just, it's a bit much. It's a bit I, overdone. I saw it right when it came out, and my impression long time ago was actually that it wasn't a bit much. It was a bit dull. Now, granted, huh. Josh, I mean, Josh Hartnett is the lead in it, so, you know. I mean, I mean, stylization-wise. Oh, uh, I gotcha. De Palma leaned a little too heavy into stylization and not enough into substance, I think. Which is kind of De Palma's M.O., but... So James Elroy, what did he he came out recently? He and did said some stuff. TJ, what do you say? Yeah, um, I and I quote: "People love the movie L.A. Confidential. I think it's a turkey in the highest form. I think Russell Crowe and Kim Basinger are impotent. The director died, so now I can disparage the movie." Further quote: "Curtis Curtis Hansen treated me respectfully and deferentially at all times. I responded in kind and did not meddle in the making of the film itself." L.A. Confidential went on to be grandly praised and honored and is properly viewed as the finest American crime film of the era. I find the film problematic and emblematic of the Curtis Hansen disjuncture. What I failed to feel, I admired. What I lost in emotional pop, I regained in a rush of breathtaking craftsmanship. That's a weird quotation because at the first part, he's like, this movie's garbage. And then he's like, but, you know, Curtis Hansen. So... Anyway, he doesn't like the film at all, it sounds like. And it sounds like he's suffering a little bit from that, like, it's different from my work, therefore... That's, yeah, that's... that's it's not, not good. Kind of sour grapes. Yeah, and, you know, I, I really appreciate Stephen King said one time, I, I forget what it was about, but an adaptation of one of his works that was garbage. Maybe it was Dreamcatcher. And someone asked him, like, does it bother you when they ruin your books like this? And he turned around to his shelf where his books are and looked and goes, no, nope, they're still there. <laughs> uh, which i think is great yeah. you know although um, i yeah. think that's ironic given uh the fact that stephen king is probably associated with one of the most the famous shining. rows between a director and an yeah author, well and in fairness in fairness to king at the time that was like 1980 and he had only been stephen king for like seven or eight years yeah whereas Dreamcatcher comes around it's 2003 and he can you know also you know the shining is i don't know how much stephen king has publicly said this but the sh- Stephen King had his issues with addiction and alcohol and cocaine yep. and pills. Like he, he's been open about that. So I imagine The Shining was a pretty personal story because it is about a writer who is an alcoholic. And then Kubrick makes it. It's not even that he's an alcoholic; it's just that he's like a monster. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe maybe Stephen King may have taken that a bit personally, and like that, I don't blame him for that. But you know, it also gave us like one of the best movies of the 20th century. So. I'm kind of on the Kubrick side if I have to pick a side. Um, so yeah, James Elroy didn't like the movie. Uh, he said after the fact, but like also, I don't know. He said he said nice things about it at the time, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But um, respectfully, I, it's one of those uh, when it comes to to authors of source material, they're biased automatically. They're a biased source, so their opinions mm-hmm. are going to be influenced by who they are and their connection with the material, right? So. Um, it's an interesting quote from the author. I, I don't really take, take it to, to mean much. At least it doesn't affect my watching by any means. This was adapted by screenwriter Brian Helgeland. Is it Helgeland or Helgeland? Do you know? I don't know. 
I'll go, yeah, I don't I'll know. go with Helgeland. I'll go with Hard G. Uh, Brian Helgeland and director Curtis Hansen uh, co-wrote the screenplay together. Uh, Brian Helgeland's other credits include Mystic River, which I think is a very good movie, uh, 42, the Jackie Robinson movie, and uh, Legend, the Tom Hardy crime caper that did okay. I didn't see it. And and I just want to throw this out here because he's actually he, he's actually got a record in here. He's one of uh, only three people to win a Razzie Award the same weekend he won an Oscar. Because wow. hold on, hold on. Are the other are the other two people Sandra Bullock and uh, 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 Halle Berry? Uh, Alan Menken uh, okay. is the other. Yeah, Alan Menken is the other one. Uh, Alan Menken did it first. He won. He I think. He, he do you say one? I guess we'll say one. A Razzie for uh, writing a song for the film adaptation of Newsies, and then he turned around the same weekend and won an Oscar, two Oscars for Aladdin. Um, mm-hmm. Heglin here, he won adapted screenplay at the Oscars for uh, this film for LA Confidential, and the same weekend he won worst screenplay for The Postman. If anybody mm-hmm. out there remembers that Kevin Spacey dud. Uh, that was a, a Hegelin screenplay. Ooh. Yep. So Sandra Bullock won Best Actress for The Blind Side. I believe she also won the Razzie for All About Steve. That's correct. And the reason I was thinking of Halle Berry is they were consecutive years, yeah. not consecutive nights. Mm-hmm. She won for Monsters Ball, then won the Razzie for Catwoman the next year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, other people in this movie involved in the making of, uh, Russell Crowe plays Bud White, and this was kind of his introduction to U.S. audiences. I was looking at his filmography, and... The only thing I'd heard of that he'd been in before this was The Quick and the Dead. And the only reason I'd heard of that is because the Blank Check guys recently did Sam Raimi's filmography. So I'm kind of up on Sam Raimi for the first time. So I have not seen The Quick and the Dead, but Russell Crowe's in it. Came out a couple years before this. And he is about to be on top of the world. Because this came out in 97. And in 99, 2000, 2001, he's in three consecutive Best Picture nominees, two of which win. And he's nominated for Best Actor three times in a row, one of which he wins. So he's about to... About to really pop off, and this was his intro to U.S. audiences. It was also U.S. audiences' introduction to Guy Pierce, who I did not know. I, I didn't recognize any movies he'd been in before this, but he plays Exley. He's, I think he's probably the lead lead. Yeah. There's kind of three leads, mm-hmm. but he's like the lead lead. Yeah. And Bud, Bud White's probably the second important lead, Russell Crowe. Um, I think that having kind of picking two actors out of relative obscurity and putting them at the center of your movie – and then the fact that both those actors are still, like, working and uh, recognizable 25 years later, I think that movie makes the movie age pretty well. Is Russell Crowe recognizable? Yeah. He's more famous than Guy Pierce is. No, I know. That was a joke about, have you seen him lately? <laughs> I have seen him. Did you see him at Unhinged? He's put, on, he's put on weight, but, like, you know, people put on weight as they get older. That's totally fine. He's amazing in The Nice Guys, which is, like, a weird, good companion piece of this movie. Mm. Yeah, which I think. Can Basinger pops back up in that? She does. Yeah. yeah. And that's also a period piece, neo-noir, that takes place in Los Angeles and is about cover-ups and conspiracies and features Russell Crowe as the enforcer of the pair of detectives that, un- you know, uncovers the mystery. One of the very few times I can stand Ryan Gosling, too. <laughs> Go to hell, dude. You're, you're, you're in the minority here. Well, that that kind of take is not welcome on this podcast. Briefly, while we're talking about the, uh, the, the leads here, Guy Pierce, mm-hmm. uh, you're right. This is like his first, I think, real introduction to American audiences beyond uh, his part as one of the leads in an Australian film a few years before this called The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I can't recommend that film enough because it's just a joy to watch and sit through. 
Um, but that was, I think, the first international film he'd really done that that struck a chord. But its um, its topics obviously involve three gay men, and actually, I'm sorry, two gay men and a trans uh, trans woman um, in Australia. And so it didn't get the widest of audiences, and it didn't uh, didn't get released in the U.S. without some objections. So Guy Pierce here, very different uh, film than what he'd previously been seen by american audiences in right but again like i I think watching the godfather part two even though it came out 50 plus years ago the fact that like al pacino and rob de niro are still in movies and still like in the popular consciousness like that makes that movie age pretty well not that that movie would ever age poorly because it's one of the greatest movies ever made but like you get what i'm saying like you watch a movie from a couple decades ago and if you recognize that if if guy pierce and russell crowe just disappeared after this or maybe their careers fizzled out in the early 2000s like this would still be a good movie but like it would lose something, you know, and that that's that's the case I'm making. So I think it ages well because of Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe. On the other <laughs> side of the coin, yeah. it does not age very well because Kevin Spacey is the third lead, uh, playing Jack the Sense. Um, and uh, I I think he's good in this. Like I was, we were talking about offline. Some of his line reads are pretty excellent. Uh, when um, Exley kind of recruits him to help him kind of surreptitiously investigate the night out killings because he, he can't trust the guys in his department so he recruits he recruits kevin spacey like kevin spacey gives him some pretty cold line readings you know he's like why would you want to dig up what happened to the night owl lieutenant like it's a really a good line reading that only kevin spacey can do but um still still uh tj you wanted some space to talk about kevin spacey here's that space well just Kind of like we did with William Hurt, acknowledging the elephant in the room that he's been accused of multiple um, violent sexual crimes, credibly accused. I don't know that he's been found guilty yet. Um, He's not, to my knowledge. Yeah, but that he, you know, most likely has engaged in some really abhorrent behavior. Um, And we can have that thought in our head at the same time as we also have the thought in our head that he's a great actor and I think he's very... He's excellent in this film. Um, so we will be talking yes. about him as an actor here and uh, that that is, you know, we're not necessarily endorsing him as a as a uh, human being at the same time. Thank you for the disclaimer. Um, he On that note, he is in between two Oscar wins, I believe, for this movie because yep. he won Best Supporting Actor for The Usual Suspects two years before this. He will win Best Actor for American Beauty two years after this. Which, man, that movie does not age well, given a lot of aspects to it, but also having Kevin Spacey uh, lusting after a 16-year-old in that movie. So that's a that's a tough sit nowadays. Um, but he's great in this. I agree. But he's also, um, this is a three-headed monster in terms of the you know who leads the movie, but he's the least important lead of the three. I think that's fair to say. Um, number one, because he dies at the end of Act 2. And number two, even before that, I think he was already already kind of like third- He's first build though, as you pointed out, right? Because of because of that Oscar. Yeah. And I, I think um what the film ends up being about the dilemma that is resolved in the climax is something that never really involved what he stood for as a character. Like it's an important thing that the movie's also saying, but the the climax and the decision that has to be resolved in that conflict didn't really involve what the Vicens is there kind of representing. So that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, we can talk about this more later on, but you know the movie is kind of about justice and what must be done to bring about justice, and what you know how good men 
can bring about justice in like a and still stay good men, you know. Um, and and Bud White, who's the you know the loose cannon, kind of maybe delivering some extra judicial punishments. And then there's Ed Exley on the other side of the coin, being the Boy Scout by the book kind of guy, kind of the polar opposite of Bud White. So like those two coming together in the climax, doing what they do in the climax. Jack Vincennes was kind of never his thing was kind of something else. His thing was more about like fame and glamour, which is like here in the movie, but that's kind of more set dressing. And to your point, TJ, not exactly factoring into the climax as much. I mean, somewhat, I mean, there are like newspaper headlines in the climax that kind of like dance playing that sandbox, but I agree. That's a good way to put it that he's not, he's not as important as the other two, which is interesting because at the time I know both on the posters and on the initial VHS and DVD releases, Um, Obviously, listeners can't see this, so I'll describe it. But the cover is in order. Kim Basinger has the largest representation in the image, followed by Kevin Spacey, followed by Guy Pearce, (laughs) and then a little (laughs) itty-bitty Russell Crowe in between a a large Kim Basinger and a medium-sized Guy Pearce. Both Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe are pretty small relative to Kevin Spacey and Kim Basinger. Yes, yep. Um, so that was that. That's what audiences were seeing going into the film, and that's also what you were getting if you were going to Blockbuster to rent a copy after it was released uh, on physical media. So thank you for the segue. Other people in this are Kim Basinger, who I don't know how how, how high built she was, but she is the largest person on the cover. And that I don't know if that was I don't know if they designed that cover before or after the Oscars happened, but we can talk about that later. Um, other people here we have. Danny DeVito. I think we get the A and D. I think his credit is and Danny DeVito, right? So he was. Yep. He. I mean, I think Kevin Spacey, Kim Basinger, and Danny DeVito were all bigger stars at the time than Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce, despite being the two leads. As we just discussed, they were plucked from relative obscurity. For sure. Um, and then we got James Cromwell doing his James Cromwell thing, bringing some bringing some respect. What What is the James Cromwell thing? Because one of the things that strikes me about James Cromwell that is so great is like two years earlier he was in Babe. You know, so yeah. um, and and even the the as you said off mic, the gravitas he lends to this. Um, if you ever see him in interviews, he's a very pleasant man and a very sort of passionate advocate for animal rights and whatnot. So I, I think he he's, like he's raise one of the pigs from Babe. Pro- probably, probably um, that okay. sounds right. And uh, yeah, so I I think he's someone that even though he's never like unrecognizable, I think he has admirable range for sure. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. But he always seems to play a a character of substance within the world in the film. Right? He always seems to play someone of a certain level of importance and respect, at least among the other people in the movie. Um, yeah. And so the, immediately when you see him, you're like, well, that is somebody who holds status. It also helps that he's really damn tall. <laughs> it is. Yes. Yeah, it does. I'm always happy to see James Cromwell in anything. I'm also very happy to see David Strahan in anything. He uh, plays Pierce Patchett. Is yep. that mm-hmm. his name? Mm-hmm. Patchett. Um, I think he's good in this, but I think him and Kim Basinger both are doing a thing where they're their performances are pretty subtle, but like they both have good vibes, if that makes sense. Like the clothes and their houses and like the air of mystery about both of them. Again, both of them are pretty small performances, but that's only because the story necessitates that those characters are withholding 
and you're never really sure what to think of those characters. They're kind of like there's an air of mystery about them at all times. Because um, I think Ebert pointed out in his review, and I'll get to that in a second, anyone in this movie can be a villain, you know? So, like, there's... I don't know. I, what do you think of Strathairn and Basinger? I really... I agree with you. I always love seeing David Strathairn in things. And he... Um, you know, I think his probably most lauded performances as Ed Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck, for which oh, he was brilliant. nominated for an Oscar. Um, he's, I think, the best supporting role in... And I know I'm treading on Tommy Lee Jones a bit here, but in Lincoln, um, uh-huh. I love him in Lincoln. Let's not forget he's also excellent in Nomadland. So if you just I wasn't going to forget. No, if you just look at like those three performances of L.A. of L.A. Confidential, but then um, Nomadland and Lincoln, he's such an excellent supporting actor because I think that he adapts to and acclimates to the performances around him. Like anyone, mm-hmm. anyone. I, going opposite Daniel Day-Lewis and playing the, like, supportive opposition to a Daniel Day-Lewis character, that's a register you have to get to. In Nomadland, and this is cheers to Francis McDormand as well, he's playing off Francis McDormand, but the whole thing that makes Nomadland work is they also have to never, as, like, the only two, maybe, professional actors in that movie, can't overshadow all of the actual people that are in it and i think he does a remarkable job as does she of really just kind of feeling like a person you find like a guy yeah yeah um so it I, took me a while watching that to realize that it was even him yeah because i knew he was in it mm-hmm. and then it like he was in the movie for maybe 20 minutes where i was oh my god it's david Strathairn. Whoa. and he does a great thing in good night and good luck where he's it's an excellent performance but he doesn't fall into the biopic traps of going really over the top with with per, um impersonation mm-hmm. um so yeah i i am really fond of him he also there's something interesting we're talking about la confidential obviously and good night and good luck he fits into period piece films really well yeah he does seem like he's from the 50s doesn't he? <laughs> my my first exposure to him and he will always be this man in my mind because i've seen this movie so many times before i saw him in anything else he's a uh, ira lowenstein in a league of their own Yes. He's like the, the whiz kid that puts together the Women's Baseball League huh. in that movie and kind of runs the league a bit. And he's got to go opposite a drunk Tom Hanks several times. Mm-hmm. He's got to play opposite Gary Marshall in several scenes. And I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, TJ. He really does adapt to the performance around him or fits into the movie around him really well. Because um, he's in a way different register there than he is in Nomadland or in this or in Good Night and Good Luck, or Lincoln. He's in the Bourne films. He's in Eight Men Out to do another baseball movie. Um. <laughs> he's really good in the the, in the Bourne films as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he's just, he's a solid, he's a reliable supporting yeah. actor. Yeah. You can give a script to him and uh, he's going to fill out the, he's going to fill out the character in the role. Yeah. Oh, to answer your other question, I don't have a whole lot of relationship with Kim Basinger other than this and Vicki Vale. And yep, I like, Batman. I like her as Vicki Vale. Um, She's but- also... She's also an unofficial Bond girl. She's in the oh, the never say never again. Yeah, yeah, she's in the non-Eon production starring Sean Connery from what is that eighty three or eighty two or somewhere in there. Um, she's the yeah, she's the lead female character in that film. Um, so I mean, she's been around now. She's been acting in films for what fifteen ish years at this point, at least prominently. She's been a, a lead for a while. By the time she gets Sally Confidential. And um, to your, to our point, I guess we were talking earlier, 
I know she was in the Nice Guys. I don't recall what I've yeah. seen her in more recently than that. Uh, uh, nothing for the nothing for me. So that was seven years ago at this point. I haven't seen her seen her in anything. Uh, Honestly, I haven't seen her in much. I remember she was in you know she's in Batman. She's in this. Uh, she was in a movie called Cellular with Chris Evans that came out when we were like in middle school, early high school that I saw in theaters. Um, she's an Eight Mile. She is an Eight Mile. Yeah, it's she, been a long time since I've seen Eight Mile. She's also um, the she's the femme fatale in The Natural, opposite Robert Redford. The is she non Glenn Did she Close. shoot him? She's the non. She's not. Well, she's not that femme fatale. She's the. <laughs> femme fatale. There's a lot of ladies to watch out for in that movie. <laughs> Well, there's the one who shoots him, and then there's the then there's the one that's toying with him, and then there's the non-femme fatale, which is Glenn Close. Um, she's also in a film um, with Mickey Rourke called Nine and a Half Weeks hmm. um, okay. from '86. She's kind of she has a really solid late, you know, mid to late '80s and into, well into the '90s to the point that um, I don't know all of the details, so we don't need to get into it. But at one point, I believe she bought a town. In like Georgia she, or something, like she actually purchased. Was a there a zoo in the town? There was not a zoo, but like she bought the she, land. So she, so she didn't buy a zoo. I just want to be clear here. She did not buy a zoo. No. she bought a town, but not a zoo. But this was like sure. think early nineties American capitalism. This end of the end of end of the the, the Cold War and everything. The economy is doing great, and she was a very successful actress who ended up buying a town somewhere. I think back near where she's from, and. Uh, yeah, had all kinds of legal. There were all kinds of legal issues that arose with it. She's also, I think, married to Alec Baldwin at this time. She was at the time. Um, yeah. But she's. This is kind of. I mean, she's she's well known, which is, explains why she's so prominently yeah. displayed on the cover. The yeah. Well, so she wins an Oscar for this performance, and I want to put a pin in that because I want to talk about that in a little while. Um, LA Confidential was a very well-regarded movie at the time, maybe more than I realized. Um, first of all, it, it did good business. It was made for $35 million, made $65 million domestic, 126 worldwide, which uh, is a good, you know, good good, good business. Not like nothing crazy, but good business. Uh, it opened in September, played for seven weeks. It was like a, you know, modest success. It played for seven weeks, never made more than $5 million in a week. But uh, it was re-released in February, I assume, after Oscar nominations came out, where it was nominated for nine Oscars. And then in February, in March, it made like a steady $1.2 million every weekend for like six or seven straight weeks. So it's just like, you know, it wasn't like a smash in any means, just like consistent, good, I assume good word of mouth, that kind of thing. Got up to 65 domestic. And like, like I said, like the reviews were like staggeringly good. Like again, better than I realized. It has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 9 9 out of 10 average rating, which is like kind of the, the key figure that I'm looking at, it has a 90 on Metacritic, which is like just shy of like no country, there will be blood territory. Um, and it has an A minus cinema score. And let's see, it was voted the best film of the year by the National Society of Film Critics, the New York Film Critics Circle, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and the National Board of Review. So those are considered like the big four critics awards. And it's one of only three movies to ever sweep those. Oh, you're going to ask, aren't you? You're going to ask. What am I going to ask? Oh, I thought you were going to ask the other two. It's in the outline that you're staring at right now, oh, so I don't even have to ask. I didn't scroll down. Uh, it's Schindler's List uh, and The Social Network. Uh, so only one of those actually won Best Picture at the Oscars. The critics do not have The Social Network? Oh, that's right. No, Tom Hooper stole that one. That's right. Tom Hooper and The King's Speech. Which I'm over it. It was 13 years ago. I'm over it. But still. (laughs) 
this also was voted. So um, Roger Ebert referenced this in his great movies essay. So I assume this this list, I assume, was created in like 2008-ish, 2007-2008. But apparently the LA Times surveyed a bunch of writers and editors and asked them to vote on the best films set in Los Angeles in the last 25 years. So 25 years from 2008 or so. And the movie has to communicate, quote, communicate some inherent truth about the LA experience. And only one film per director is allowed on the list. And LA Confidential topped the list. The number one movie made in the 25 years preceding 2008 that was set in Los Angeles and communicated some inherent truths about the LA experience. And I just wanted to list off the top 10 because there's some bangers in here. We got number one, LA Confidential, Boogie Nights, Jackie Brown, Boys in the Hood, Beverly Hills Cop, The Player, Clueless, Repo Man, Collateral, and The Big Lebowski. And as I said off, as I said off, Mike, I've always seen six of those, but those are six of my favorite movies. Holy shit! Let me ask you, as the resident resident of La La Land, um, what about L.A. Confidential communicates some inherent truth about the L.A. experience? Uh, I think L.A. Confidential specifically. Um, well, as I said off Mike, L.A. is a very sprawling city. In fact, it's really a thousand cities on top of each other. And it's so it's kind of a city of neighborhoods. And part of that is that it's some pretty disparate income stratospheres, you know, extremely, extremely rich people, the richest people in the country, and also some pretty poor people. And you kind of get that in the different neighborhoods. Like, I was kind of fascinated by like, Pierce Patchett, Dave Strahan's house versus Kim Basinger, uh, Lynn, what's her last name? Bracken. Lynn Bracken's house, like, um, and like uh, the house in Elysian Park where Bud White finds the body buried it, you know, and like uh, where the, uh, I can't remember what neighborhood they, they go find the black guys, but like, you know, that apartment complex, like it's a, just like the different places people live and like you got to drive all over town to go talk to this person and then you got to go talk to this person and like the different you know the different stratospheres of wealth i don't know just, i'm going off the top of my head here you kind of surprise you kind of jump this off yeah like, yeah okay that seems like a i'll, a good I'll part buy of that experience. that's a good answer also looking at this list not for nothing you've got a few of these films i mean there's kind of a an I, I, idyllic sentiment maybe or a dreamlike a thought of Los Angeles for a lot of people who don't necessarily live there. And all of these films, or not all of them, but many of them are touching on a darker, kind of grittier, more realistic um, understanding of life and experience in Los Angeles and how it varies too. To your point, there's not a, there, there's income um, disparity, there's uh, power disparity, um, there's a lot more corruption particularly you talk about we're talking about la confidential obviously um there's corruption and and kind of amoral justice which in the 1990s is something that folks in los angeles county are definitely dealing with in real time every day in their their in the news cycle and in their own personal interactions with each other yeah okay so i've thought about it a little bit more since tj asked me the question two minutes ago uh, the opening sequence. What is the opening sequence, TJ? It's a lot like the full Monty, where you get a montage of basically, here's what's so great about L.A. Um, stock yes. footage with Sid Hutchins, Danny, Danny DeVito, DeVito, 
Sid Hutchins, like, saying, come to L.A., like, literally doing, like, an advertisement for Los Angeles and how idyllic it is, and there's movie stars and great weather, and so much is great here, and then it kind of, like, turns a bit into Mickey Cohen, the, the crime boss who just got arrested, and there's now a vacuum in the crime world in L.A., and, quote, how can organized crime exist in a city with the best police force in the world? That's a pretty ironic sentiment, and especially, Ken, as you just said, in 1997, five years after the LAPD was front and center on world headlines and not in a good way, right. that's that's an interesting part of the LA experience. And the fact that like this movie up front is saying the best police force in the world can tackle organized crime, but actually like the LAPD has an image problem both in real life and in the movie. Yeah, this movie supposes that actually the LAPD is organized crime. Yes, and, that's exactly right. And I think you can't watch this movie or you can't read this movie divorcing it from the Rodney King riots five years earlier. Particularly because of some treatment of some black suspects in this movie. You know? uh, when black and brown people don't get away with crimes they, in this film, they get accused of crimes. They get abused in custody. Yep. Um, they get, uh, quote unquote, justice for crimes they might have committed, but not the ones that they're getting punished for. But who gets away with crimes? The white people with badges. Correct. Well, do they get away with it? Um, they almost do. Uh, but my, my point is, though, like, if you want to talk about, like, the L.A. experience, like, the fact that the first act of this movie has the, I guess, the head of the police force in meetings with the D.A., and they are trying to combat what they call an image problem with the LAPD, when it's actually not really an image problem, it's just a problem problem. Yeah, it's an They're institutional like, problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know? Why do people so, think we're so bad? Well, <laughs> let's see what you're up to, boyo. Well, it's, it's interesting. They're also talking about the public, and these three men, the police chief, the DA, uh, and Captain Smith, you got uh, James Cromwell there, uh, when they're talking about the the people's impression of the force, you know they're talking about white people in Los Angeles yeah. County. Yeah, that's what they're most well, it's concerned also, it's about. The 50s. Yeah, it's the fifties. Right. Yeah. They're, exactly. No one gave a shit about no, no one gave a shit about anything besides what white people thought until like ten or fifteen years after. All this, the people minimum. with the white picket fences those those are who they're thinking about. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So I think that's part of what makes this part of the experience. What do you is that answer? Is it okay? I think that's think? a great answer. Yeah. I, I don't know as someone that lives in flyover country. I just I, looking at that list now that I'm I'm looking it over. I think it's missing a big one. Clueless. Well, well, no, but remember this is of the previous 25 years. So whenever this was, so you're thinking Chinatown, right? No, I'm thinking Mulholland Drive. Ah, mm, I I completely agree. You're exactly right. Yes, but that then should be number here. one yeah. with a bullet. Mulholland if you Drive. Slip, yes. Even if you slip that one in here, so of a, of 11 films, if you add Mulholland Drive. Clueless is the only one on this list that doesn't really involve crime, and yet, I mean, it, her dad's a lawyer, so... Except he, Alicia Silverstone a, stealing the show. Oh, man. But that also is a great, you know, the fact that it takes place in Beverly Hills, and, like, they go to a valley party, and, like, there's a big hubbub about them driving to the valley, and then driving home from the valley, they're talking about who lives above Sunset, or above Olympic, or below Sunset, and they go to Westside Pavilion, where I used to go a lot to see movies, and uh, she gets robbed at a gas, the big clown gas station on Vineland in the valley. Um, 
I like Clueless as an alien movie for sure. Bradley Hills High School. I don't. Yeah, I don't disagree with it. It's just interesting. It's the only one that doesn't really. Although now that you mention it, there's a crime committed in the movie. I think about it. Yeah. So all, she gets mugged. All of yeah. these films involve some crime on some level. Um, Big Lebowski is also great as an alien movie. I love uh, just like Jeff Lebowski being like a guy you see. In fact, I was actually driving uh, on on Hollywood Boulevard and I was passing, I guess Hollywood High School or something, and I saw a guy walking his dog dressed suspiciously like the dude and i don't think it was intentional but like he had the sandals he had the sunglasses he had the long hair and the beard and he had like it wasn't quite a robe but like something robe like and i'm like man i probably took his picture and sent it to my dad and my brothers because like i needed to show them that like jeff about the dude's a guy that exists yeah sometimes sure. there's a man well he's sometimes just the man of his man. time <laughs> um i'm glad to see boogie nights here uh boogie nights will come up later in this very conversation so, uh, real quick, before we get to, like, what we think about the movie, I want to talk about Letterboxd real quick. That's cool. Um, the number one <laughs> the number one most liked review on Letterboxd for LA Confidential is a five-star review from one David Sims, who writes oh, for The Atlantic yep. and is also a co-host of the Blank Check podcast, which I evoke on this podcast all the time. And th- this is just such, like, a, like a typical highest-rated Letterboxd review in that it's, like, kind of insightful but also like not very not very deep and like no shots of david sims just you know that's how letterbox works quote when you think about it it's the wizard of oz bud gets a brain jack gets a heart ed gets the courage which is true but it's also kind of like a cheeky like oh that's kind of fun observation that will get three thousand likes on letterboxd um another review this from uh, a four-star review from silent dawn who's a pretty prolific letterboxd account um quote doesn't really have the subverted genre styling or uprooted narrative conventions of most new noir. In practice, it's just it's just a ripping James Elroy adaptation and a compelling mystery. But with Curtis Hansen behind the camera and Dante Spinati as DP, it's a tantalizing mix of 90s sex and violence with the moral dilemmas of corrupt law enforcement. Each sequence unfolding onto the next like a great novel, all while the A-game ensemble cast rises to the challenge. I think it's a pretty good distillation of like this movie and why it works why it's good mm-hmm. thoughts yeah comments, anything uh, again not not incredibly insightful but that's a really good like elevator yeah. pitch for the movie should i watch yeah. this yes here's why and lastly here is a five-star review from a user called silent j and uh it's just like four line the review is four lines and each one starts with n-o-i-r spelling out noir and it says nicely paced outstanding acting intelligent screenplay remarkable film Mm. n-o-i-r noir yeah i see what they did that's there. letterbox for you yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's letterbox <laughs> for you um tj yeah what are your what are your general thoughts on LA confidential if i may now that we're 40 minutes into this podcast sure uh i like this film a lot and you know i'm i'm a bit befuddled at my own love for this movie because we're what what is this episode 29 so if you've listened to us talk for something like 60 plus hours at this point, you probably have gathered that uh, I'm a pretentious asshole. And I like <laughs> when things are um, abstract, difficult, uh, somewhat cerebral, philosophical, aesthetically challenging. This movie is not really any of those things. And it's a lot of the things that I don't particularly like in the sense that it's uh, rather conventional in its narrative structure. It is... Uh, classic in its construction. It's rather um, low-key and naturalistic in its aesthetics. But th- uh, this this thing is 
it just hums and it's it really even though it does look like a 90s film and that i think hansen pulls back a couple aesthetic choices he could have made to make this actually look like double indemnity um yeah it, it looks more like miami vice than double indemnity well it's uh He's he's doing this really interesting thing of sort of like referring back to a period in film, the noir period, yet also very much making it a 90s thing. And I think that's key to him commenting on contemporary L.A., particularly as we mentioned post-Rodney King riots, because my first couple takes on this movie was this should have been in black and white. Where's my voiceover? You know, like this sort of thing. And and watching it now, the, the cinematography is very restrained, particularly in the lighting. There's a lot of like, um, it, it, there's not very high contrast in the lighting. The lighting is really rather bright. There's very few night scenes, which is rare for a noir. Yes. Is there any, there's one scene in rain, which is very rare for a noir. And in daytime too. It's in the daytime. It's, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Day. yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't feel as fatalistic as noir typically does. So I'm naming a lot of things that had I not seen the movie, I would have gone, mm. but this thing works classically really, really well. Um, the writing is extremely tight. I think the ensemble cast is excellent. The directing, while not flashy, I think is, uh, professional to the like dotted i's and crossed t's and i got a couple specific notes on that later so this is a movie that i'm quite fond of kind of despite or in spite of the things it's doing that i'm typically not on board for i'm glad you put it that way because it segues nicely into my take which is uh, give me some runway then i'll land the plane we've talked about some movies in this podcast that i both did not like okay I, i didn't think it was good and I didn't like it because there's a difference between those two. Because we've also talked about movies in the podcast where, like, I can see, I can see that it's a good movie. I can see why people like it. I can see why it was not my best picture. But like, I didn't really like it. You know, like, and kind of, I can kind of remove myself. Like the Red Shoes. A- as we're recording this, we we recorded this months in advance. Like, we just dropped the Red Shoes a couple weeks ago. The Red Shoes is like a great movie that I didn't like very much. But you know, I can remove myself and be like, that's good, even if I didn't like it. But, like, this is kind of the other side of that coin where, like, I can't really tell you if this is a great movie or not because it is it is so for me. It is a great movie, Josh. <laughs> it is, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I agree. It probably is. But, like, it definitely the Red is. Shoes is <laughs> okay. The Red Shoes is not for me. This is so fucking for me. I can't even begin to tell you how much this is for me. You know? So, like, I'm kind of I'm kind of blinded by that such that I, I'm not sure I can really trust my own opinion on it. But, like, I, I agree. It probably is a great movie. And I'm, I'm glad you guys are there to validate that. But, like, you know, detectives cops corruption cover-ups murders double crossings a case to be solved a mystery to be unfolded and pair all that with a period piece about la with nods to old hollywood fucking yes dude give me this all day i i want nothing more than this kind of movie all the time and usually set in la and referring to hollywood is two things that get me the fuck out so but, like, it, it's just enough. Like, they, they kind of sprinkle the Hollywood in. The fact that there's, like, they, they have prostitutes made to look like Hollywood starlets at the time. That's kind of it. Well, this the, They kind of sprinkle it in. Because this is, like, L.A. is actually a city full of frauds is kind of what this this mm. movie is about. Ooh. Whereas That's a good way to put it. Yes. It's whereas, and sorry, facades. I'm, I'm going to shit on movies you guys like. Just let me, let me get through this long sentence. Something like La La Land or 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so high on its, or Babylon, they're so high on their own supply about like, God, I fucking love Hollywood and LA. And this is something that I think has enough of a cultural uh, distance or dissonance from it that it's able to look at what makes the setting interesting and its contradictions. And maybe it's because, is, Curtis Hansen was, was he Australian? I'm not sure. Um, like Russell Crowe is New Zealand and uh, Guy Pierce is from Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe, and, and I don't think Elroy is American either, but maybe it has something to do with like an outsider perspective on it that it's able, it, the text and the subtext, to use a Josh phrase, are about uh, performance, facade, fraud, light, everything. You know, look at the lighting, make sure the light's not in my eyes as I'm arresting these people. Um and I, and I think it makes a lot out of this image versus reality contradiction that the the um, LAPD is dealing with. I agree with most of what you said, except that I would not lump Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with those movies that are high on their own supply about L.A. in the movie industry. I, I disagree. Um, the other thing I want to say about L.A. Confidential and the reason I one of the reasons I like it so much is it's kind of like I was thinking about. The things that's evoking, like de- detective stories set in the 50s in L.A. And I was thinking about uh, Raymond Chandler, who's kind of like the guy who's written the novels. You know, he wrote The Big Sleep. He wrote uh, The Long Goodbye. He also worked in the screenplays for Double Indemnity and Strangers on a Train. So he is like the 50s noir guy, 40s and 50s guy, uh, usually set in Los Angeles. But he's kind of like the the thinking man's noir writer, you know, mm. the not that the, not that they're you know pretentious anyway, but they are more a little more highfalutin, a little more gleanier, you know, gleanier. Literary, quote unquote. Yeah. Sure, literary. Yeah. And then on the on the other side of that, I think of like a guy like Mickey Spillane. Mm. Have you guys ever read any Mickey Spillane? No, I've not. Never read, but I've seen the adaptations of his work. Sure, it's just like it is the same thing. It's like fifties detective L.A., but it is so much grittier and grimier than Raymond Chandler. There's no veneer on anything. It's just dirty. Like it's like it is pulp. And sometimes that's exactly what you want you know pulp but like it's you know more violent more sex more over the top it's it's not you know not raymond chandler it's a lot dirtier but like this is kind of right in between those two it's kind of splitting the difference between raymond chandler and mickey spillane and um you know there, there are there are dirty cops a lot of them and they're involved in drugs and murders and there's some violent shootouts and there's a pretty high body count in this like higher yeah, than i remembered me too yeah and, you know, the the main female lead is a sex worker. Like, it all, th- there's an edge to this movie, but, like, it's not, like, it's not quite Mickey Spillane territory, but I don't know. It's, like, right in the pocket for me. So, it's, like, everything about this movie is, like, what I like and what I want. Um, Ken, how about you? Where are you at on LA Confidential in general? I, I adore this movie because this yeah. this this pleases me in, uh, on multiple levels. Look, this is a movie that is highly, highly entertaining, but also competent. I love, I love any time... A film crew, that director all the way down to the, the set designers and the, the people working on the score, the editor, everybody involved. If you can competently put together a film that is uh, efficiently, efficiently constructed, that is well-paced, that is saying something that's got an undercurrent and, and some substance under it, while also making it entertaining, look, that's fantastic. It doesn't always have to be overtly c- cerebral. It can be on the surface entertaining, um, but just put all all that you can into it. The thing I love about film noir and why I love any kind of 
film generally in this genre, even the ones that don't work so well I still enjoy watching, it's because of the complexity of character. Because at the end of the day, Mm. what makes for an interesting story and an interesting watch is going to be the characters. And in this film, they're complex. There's a lot of gray. And to what TJ was pointing, pointing to earlier, this is a film of facades. So every single person we meet there is something behind what we're seeing the first time we meet them. There's more to their story. There's more to their character. And we've got to travel through the film and the story to unravel what's going on with each character. And sometimes, well, in fact, not sometimes, all the time in these movies, they're hiding from each other. And the question, there's always a question, what's the payoff at the end going to be? How is this going to resolve itself? And how are they... Generally, in film noir, you're not necessarily expecting a positive result, right? You're not expecting everybody to walk off into the sunset. And that's something we'll get to, I'm sure. This film also kind of throws that up in the air. And I appreciate the the slight shift, even if it's not all hunky-dory and, and pr- happy on uh, on for the viewer, necessarily. It's not all good. but I I love everything you said there, because it, it segues nicely into what I want to do next. I want to get, get in the movie, but I'm open, I want to talk about... In Roger Ebert's Great Movies Review that he wrote in 2008, uh, he opens with the following, quote, The opening scenes of Elliot Confidential are devoted to establishing the three central characters, all cops. We may be excused for expecting that they will be antagonists. Indeed, they think so themselves. But the film has other plans, and much of its fascination comes from the way it puts the three cops on the same side and never really declares anyone the antagonist until near the end. Potential villains are all over the screen, but they remain potential, right up to the closing scenes. What the three cops are fighting most of the time is a pervasive corruption that saturates the world in which they move. I think that's great. And kind of what you were alluding and what I was talking about off mic is that these three uh, are introduced perfectly in that they're all introduced demonstrating their strengths and their weaknesses, their flaws, uh, which kind of overshadow their strengths. Um, I think we first meet Bud White, and he is sitting outside a house yep. watching a domestic dispute take place, and then he goes in and kind of beats the shit out of the guy, and like you know tells the woman to go get herself cleaned up and go stay someplace safe, and like then calls it in, but like he doesn't call it in until after he beats the shit out of the guy, right? And that kind of that shows you that he has a protective streak, particularly when it comes to battered women, but he also is violent and a loose cannon, and maybe. Uh, suspects fall down a couple times on their way to the precinct, you know? Yeah, and kind of and his partner says right off the bat, oh, you're like Santa, except everyone on your list is naughty. So we learn that he, this is a thing he does, and a right. thing that he yeah. he takes his, you know, kind of kind of like an extracurricular thing that is is a particular interest of his. And he, he says as he beats that guy up and then handcuffs him, you know, you'll be out in a year and a half, I'm going to contact your parole officer, and if you touch her again... I'll send you to St. Quentin on, like, kitty rape charges. So he's so – the thing with him is, like, that's a great – good, you're protecting this woman. That guy's a piece of shit. Like, this is all right. But then he's saying, I'm also willing to go make shit up about you just to make sure that you don't – like, I I will bend the law to really put you away. Um, Which is – kind of the main theme of the movie absolutely is like yeah like that's what uh um dudley smith the captain played by james cromwell tells ed exley played by gary pierce very early on that first conversation yeah. like, are you willing to plant evidence on a, a suspect you know to be guilty 
Are you willing to shoot a man in the back that you know to be guilty? That kind of thing. Like, are you willing to go outside the book to deliver justice when the book is kind of handcuffing you and making you unable to deliver justice? Like that kind of thing. And like, when can you step outside the law in order to do what's right, I guess? Again, like how can good men stay good but still bring justice about? Yeah. What's what's so great about that scene? Because Exley's big thing the entire time is he wants to live up to his dad. He thinks he gets there by going the book to a T and just being like the A plus student all the way through. And what's so being the Boy Scout. Yeah. What's so cool about that scene too is right before Dudley asks right when Dudley asks the question, it breaks the one eighty in the editing. So you're like, oh, okay, something's up here. And he asks him these questions and actually answers correctly. But then Dudley's response is basically like well, then you shouldn't actually be on the streets doing anything with violent crime. And what's really cool is right when he says that, it goes from doing like shot reverse shots into Dudley almost looking directly into the camera, almost. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an intensity to that moment that is both reminding Exley sort of where his spot is within the unit, but also like putting Dudley in that position, almost almost, um, telegraphing it too soon that... This is not a guy that you mess with either. And so that segues nicely because uh, the way that Exley's introduced, he's being interviewed by the LA Times. Uh, he is he's at the police station. It's Christmas Eve, and they're doing a story on him because his dad was an LAPD hero who died in the line of duty, and now he's like the up and comer at the LAPD. So it conveys a number of things immediately. Number one, it establishes his father as soon as possible. In fact, you learn about his dad being an LAPD hero. The second you meet him, you learn about his dad, which is kind of what overshadows everything about him and what he's trying to do and live up to. Number two, you know, he's young. They even say like, aren't you a little young to be night watch commander? And he says, well, it's Christmas Eve. So the married men have the night off. It's temporary. I'm, I'm sacrificing my personal life in order to have a position of authority here, even though I'm a little too young to have this position of authority. I'm ambitious and I want it. That's number two about him. And number three, uh, it seems a bit clunky and a bit expositiony to have someone be interviewed by the paper to like teach you about the character when you first meet them. But then it factors in the plot so nicely because then they are there to capture the Christmas Eve brawl that takes place a few moments later and kind of really sets the plot in motion. So I thought that was like really elegantly done and well integrated. And also you learn a lot about the character immediately. Yeah. And I I would think it was clunky if the involving the press and the police relationship with the press was not such an integral part of the film. Mm. If they were just there for that, it would have been a little bit like, oh, I don't know, a therapist scene to get exposition in. But that, that whole idea of, again, their image and what's behind the image and how you orchestrate that image is something that's very important to the film. So I think it works really nicely. And thirdly, we <laughs> meet Jack Vincennes, uh, Kevin Spacey. And do we meet him on a film set? He's dancing if I, when okay. we first meet him. He's, they're on, they, but he is it's around a, the stars of a TV correct. show. Correct. There's, there's, there's clearly a, a, a party or some kind of Christmas revelry going on surrounding the set of Badge of Honor, which is the series for which he's the uh, police consultant. And he's dancing Technical with, consultant, yes. He's dancing with a beautiful woman. He's, he's living it up. He's living the life that everyone kind of thinks about or wants and dreams of when you're in Los Angeles. You know, just chilling, relaxing. He's technically on the job. And yet he's dancing with a beautiful woman with to nice music. He's breaking out some moves. 
And he's got connections with all of these famous people, including the media, the same people who were also just interviewing Hexley. The difference is he's got an informational kind of a quid pro quo relationship with and it's not the same media. It's uh, that's where is also where we're, like we're the, introduced to Danny DeVito. The, the, the gossip magazine. Yeah. yeah. Sid Hutchins. Hush hush. hush hush. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of another means that he does his job as a cop is he gets tipped off by Sid Hutchins, the gossip magazine guy of people doing wrongdoing. And then he like uh, makes the arrests with Sid in the nose that Sid can get his picture and like glamorous locations arresting high profile people to put on the cover of his magazine gets jack 50 bucks jack gets a nice collar and gets his name out there and you know that's what he's about is like kind of the glamour and and the the fame of it all okay well and and with with sid just what great casting of frank reynolds as a complete sleazeball (laughs) he's excellent (laughs) but it's the perfect introduction of all three of your characters you have bud who is violent but protective so again like his flaw kind of overshadows his strength uh, Exley, who is uh, ambitious and smart, but like, you know, the ambition kind of overshadows the smartness. Like, <laughs> the ambition is both good and bad, but the bad part kind of overshadows the good part. And then Vincennes, who is like charismatic and has connections, but is kind of maybe focused on the wrong thing. So, like, all three, to Ebert's point, kind of seem like they could be antagonists and kind of are antagonists and like kind of three sides of a triangle. And then, like, the uh, the, the first act is pretty busy. There's a lot of stuff going on in the first act. Uh, as I kind of just alluded, there's a brawl in the, uh, I guess, in the jail below the police station where, like, um, cops are at the precinct. It's Christmas Eve. They're drinking. And they bring in three suspects who allegedly, like, were involved in some cops getting hurt in the line of duty. And, like, the cops were fine, as Exley says. But, like, the drunk cops kind of work themselves up and, like, want to get some payback so they like beat these guys up and the press are there to take pictures each cop is exaggerating uh more and more the injuries exactly. they're suffered exaggerating by these, how bad yeah. yeah their co-workers got yeah exactly which works them up into a frenzy and punches are thrown guys in handcuffs get beat up pretty bad etc the press who's there to interview Exley is there to get pictures and so then the lapd with its already existing image problem has to deal with this now and that's kind of like the three leads' respective response to this is extremely telling and also kind of sets them up on a collision course to conflict with each other. Uh, Bud White, number one, immediately says, I won't, I will not testify. I will not snitch on anybody. Hardline has to give up his gun and his badge because of it. But like, that's his principle. That's his line in the sand. Exley, on the other hand, is all too happy to name names because, you know, they did wrong. Shrug. They got to get punished because they did wrong. Like, you can't, you know, we can't protect ourselves. Like, you did something wrong, you got to go to jail for it. So, like, he's all too happy to, like, get promoted because he's willing to name names. And then he even has the idea. He proposes this to the DA and the chief. Like, hey, put this on guys who already have their pensions. That way, like, they can get fired, but they're they're still taken care of, you know? Um, And then Vince, and he also, like knows how to get Jack Vincennes to name names, and that's by um, taking away his TV show. He uh, actually recommends that to the DA. And then Vincennes, again, very telling response, he is not willing to name names until they say, we're taking you off Badge of Honor. And if you name names, then you can go on a six-month tour of Vice and then go back to Narcotics and get your show back. So, like, all three guys, their response is very telling about their characters. 
Yeah. And with uh, that that sequence of the three of them together, the thing I think it distills really nicely is what they say they're about, which is different, but they're actually all kind of about the same thing. So Bud says that he's about this sense of duty, even if it means that he has to be a vigilante. But as we learn later, even that sense of duty is rooted in a personal trauma involving his father attacking his mother and him jumping in. So that's why he's so um, vigilant about going after men who abuse women. And then, but so, so he says it's about them, but it's really about him dealing, you know, exercising this past trauma. Um, Exley says that it's about the force, but really it's about him also being in the shadow of his father. And, and sort of living up to that. And then Vincennes tries to play kind of politician there, but it too is about his ego. So all three of them, they, they say that their duty is towards something else, but their duty is ultimately sort of narcissistic and self-serving. And that's the thing that I think that they all have in common there. And what's really cool is that scene where Vincennes comes in, they put Exley behind that mirror. One way, yeah, the one way mirror. And... Spacey's great when they they mention the badge of honor thing, and he just kind of his face falls. His face really falls. Oh. Yeah, it's great. And then he looks over at the mirror, and he knows. Uh-huh. And then as uh, it's not the district attorney, it's the DA, maybe not James, not James Cromwell, and not the DA. Yeah, the third guy, the who I think is maybe the head of LAPD. Somebody. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, he comes over, and you get Exley's reflection as kind of a a two shot in there, yeah. and. I, I think it's a nice way of seeing because Exley sort of succeeds powerfully there while being unseen, but it is again an, literally an image he projects, right? Yeah, yeah. Good directing, good image. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like I kind of said, I think that 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 setup again. This is all Act One still. This is all in the first twenty minutes or so. Um, it sets the characters up to make them adversarial to each other because Vincennes knows that it was Exley that kind of fucked him over and made him lose his show. And Bud White also knows that it's Exley and Vincennes who name names. And, like, Bud White got fired. He gets hired back pretty quickly, but he does initially get fired. And his partner gets fired. His partner kind of gets blamed for everything. Dick Stensland. And um, so, like, Bud White's primed to not like Vincennes and not like Exley. Jack Vincennes is primed to not like Exley and also not like Bud White because Bud White's kind of started the fight, kind of. And then Exley has kind of got people coming at him from all sides. So it really sets the characters up to hate each other. Well, yeah, all all of these opinions of these these various characters, they're all accurate. Like Dick Stenslin, yeah. do you, you you start to you dislike Bud White in the beginning because of how blind he is. Like I get it, he's your partner, but Dick's he's loyal to his partner who's a piece of shit. Yeah, Dick Stenslin, yeah. he is literally unfit for service, and and uh, <laughs> which Dudley mentioned several times. I was going to say Dudley <laughs> Smith even admits that he's like he's so fat. <laughs> he's, he's failed. Yeah, he's failed his weight test or whatever. Yeah. Uh, every CO he's ever had is what he said. Every commanding officer he's ever been in front of, and. So the fact that Bud's so blind, to, he's got this blind loyalty to his partner, even though from the start, you know, there's something off about Dick Senslin. Even just the way he's lazing about in the back of the car. Yeah, when we, when we first meet Bud White, he's like watching the domestic dispute happen from his car. Stenson in the back seat, pulling from a bottle of whiskey, yeah. just kind of laughing about it all. And like, and he's got yeah, the what other, a piece of shit. They finally, they, they go pick up alcohol and they bring it back to the station for the Christmas party. And as they're coming in... Stenlin's got that line of he's got his priorities all screwed up. 
He went and interrupted a domestic dispute in which this guy was beating this woman. And you know, policing. <laughs> right, drinking in the back of the car. He also, Bud White also went over to check on a woman in the back of a car. Uh, that's where we first meet David Stradairn. When they're picking up the alcohol, he notices a woman who's got bandage, a bandaged nose. Now, of course, we eventually learn that it's because of surgery, but he just sees a woman who's clearly got bandages on her face, so he goes to check it out. And his, bruises, yeah. His partner, again, not involved, doesn't care, not backing him up or anything. Obviously, there's more to that scene we'll learn when we learn more about Dick Stensland. But again, they get back to the station, Bud's the one that's got his priorities all screwed up. He's not focused on the alcohol and the partying, which is all Stensland cares about at this point. So yeah, I, I think the, the opening is effective, but it's also like, it, it's kind of a lot for me, like, as I was watching this most recent time, I kind of maybe forgot how 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 messy it all is, or not messy, but like a lot of details, a lot of names, a lot of events, places, um, names, crimes thrown at you. But it, it's just setting everything up. It's setting up Bud. It's setting up Ed. And it's setting up Jack. And I, I think that like the Christmas brawl feels like it's kind of like maybe the break into two or like the start of the main story thrust, but it's not, it's still act one. The main story doesn't come until the night owl murders, which is about the half hour mark or so. And I love when Guy Pierce goes into the night owl, having just heard there's multiple homicides here. And like, there's a lot of point of view shots as he's kind of tracking through the, the coffee shop and there's like blood on the wall. And then there's like a trail of blood that he's following to the back room. And it's really effective, again, point of view shots. And he just kind of, it's a very tense scene. The music kind of gets gets intense. And then he walks in the back room. And there's like six or seven bodies just piled up, all bloodied up. It's really intense. Mm-hmm. It's good, good filmmaking. Um, yeah, and then the rest of the movie just kind of figure out what happened to the Night Owl. You know, we get some explanation, seems to fit. But then as soon as you pull on a thread and unravels, um, I think this is a rewarding rewatch, but as I kind of alluded at the top, it's so complicated that I sometimes forget a lot of the details. So like, it's almost as if I'm watching for the first time and discovering the mystery along with it for the first time. But I do love when, um, I guess it's Bud White and Exley, or is it Vinc- no, it's Vincennes and Exley go to the house with where the three or four black guys are, the guys that they, that are the main suspects for the Night Owl murders. And... When they get there, before they go into the house, they come across two other LAPD guys who were already there. And these LAPD guys just found shotguns in the backseat of the Maroon Mercury Coupe in the garage and say, these could be the shotguns for the murder. And the two LAPD guys, when Exley and Vincent show up, are, like, distraught about the fact that Exley and Vincent show up. But, like, you only notice that on second viewing. They're kind of, like, looking at each other, exchanging quiet looks. It's a brilliant bit of writing. Giving Exley and Vincennes all the dialogue, really, in that scene, they're the ones who then describe the setup, or, or, or I guess the distraction. Their perception is that these guys arrived ahead of them, and, oh, you're not going to take the credit for this by yourself. You know, we're, we're going to yeah, be in this together. Yeah. And so they establish the lie for these two guys without them having to actually say anything. But then when they go into the apartment and bust the door down, guns up, yep. one of the guys, like, pretty much opens fire the second they open the door. And, like, Exley has to, like, lift the guy's gun up so the shot goes into the ceiling instead of into one of the suspects. Right. But, like, those two LAPD guys were in there prepared to shoot these guys on sight. Oh, yeah. Because that's how they were going to, you know, get their cover up to be covered up was just, you know, kill the suspects. <laughs> but uh, Exley and Vincennes kind of 
ruin that, but then they end up getting killed anyway because they escape from LAPD custody and then get get shot later. Um, I think it's also maybe a little clean or convenient. TJ, you kind of alluded to this earlier that like these these guys, uh, you know, the black people get charged with something that they didn't do and they end up getting killed, but they also did other stuff that like makes them bad. So it makes like the killing a little more palatable, I guess. The fact that these guys were killed ostensibly for a crime they didn't commit, but they committed a different crime. So it's kind of okay. What do you think about that? Well, I I think that's one way to see it. I think the other thing that the way I read what Elroy is doing there is asking us, um, like, to what degree are you acceptable? The, The question that Smith asked at the beginning, to what degree can you accept justice, revenge, whatever it is you want to call it, being carried out for someone who, uh, some might say, deserve it, but you're doing it for the wrong thing. Like, look, I couldn't, I mean, it's it, Mickey Cohen gets arrested for what? Tax, Tax evasion. evasion. Tax right? Evasion. Yeah. Um, it's the famous Al Capone thing, too, where it's sort of, now granted, they don't get killed for it, but it, what's going on there is this thing, well, we couldn't get you on this, but we got you on this. And, so I think you're, as a viewer, then forced to go, okay, they were bad people. They deserve some sort of justice. Not that type of justice. Not for that exactly. But, you know, and that's what Inez Soto, is that her name? Says yeah. later yeah. where she's like, yep, 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 yep. I don't know, could have been them, but I wanted them dead because no one would care that they okay, raped Okay, okay, let's back up real quick. Yeah, so Bud White goes to this house that, so when the three black guys were arrested, one of them alludes the fact that there was a woman they were like taking turns on to use a euphemism and gives an address so bud white being the woman protector he is speeds off to this address goes in and and probably the most upsetting scene in the movie finds a naked woman tied to a bed and gagged Mm -hmm. and bloodied and beaten and it's like very very upsetting and then goes in the next room where guys like watching cartoons and eating cereal and just like shoots him on sight Mm mm-hmm and then, you know, puts a gun in that guy's hand and fires at the doorway that he just came in to make it look like he was fired on first. Again, the gray areas of justice, you know, doing what needs to be done, planting evidence for a suspect, you know, to be guilty. Um, but doing I it the wrong that, way. Yeah. But doing it the wrong way. But also, like, to my earlier point, the fact that you first see this soda woman naked, tied to a bed, gagged, bloodied, and bruised before you see Bud shoot this guy softens Bud shooting this guy. So, like, I think the audience is on his side well, yeah. at that point, mm-hmm. particularly because the guy is laughing and watching cartoons and eating cereal oh, yeah. with a woman tied up in the next room. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, this guy deserves a bullet he gets in his chest. 100%. No one would disagree with that. So, mm-hmm. like, you know. And then that kind of leads to a conversation between Exley and Bud White outside this house where Exley's like, a naked guy with a gun, you think people are going to believe that? And then Bud White's like, I did what needed to be done, or whatever. I don't know if that works, and, but, you know. And Dudley tells him, I'll give you a minute in there before we come in. So he's done this yeah. before, you know. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Intellectually, the viewer knows, we, we all know it's wrong. But emotionally, it's defensible because of what they because of what Hanson's shown us, what the, the film shows us up to this point. The fact is those guys... Yeah, they did kidnap this woman. They were holding this woman hostage, even though that has nothing to do with... Repeatedly assaulting her, yeah. That has nothing to do with what they were framed for. They basically admit in the the jail, or in the state police station, they've admitted to a different crime. And it almost almost 
for the police at least, and Smith would say, justifies everything they're doing. Yeah. And I, I think that's what's so interesting about this movie is that it's about we, – we all have these like innate impulsive recognitions of what we think is just. And so within a society, you erect a police force that is supposed to do that, but then it becomes such a complicated and flawed bureaucratic system that justice gets um, – stalled Bogged down. exactly yeah. and so the the human side of it that wants that quick thing really kind of just wants the wild west back mm-hmm. you know so so like we created these institutions in order to have something civilized but when they don't move as quickly as we want we're very willing to just kind of go let's do it the old-fashioned way well because you know not to take this stance but like the criminals aren't bound by red tape so, like, the people stopping the criminals are, so that kind of gives the criminals the edge in some sense. In some sense, yes. And it's not. And it's not that the film's not critical of that because obviously this film is yeah. critical of that. It's a post Dirty Harry movie, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. but mm-hmm. audiences are used to this for the previous two or three decades. This is what we've seen from police forces and detectives. But like TJ alluded, uh, this woman Soto, who was you know held captive and repeatedly raped, she in her statement says that the guys left her at midnight, which gives them enough time to go to the night owl at 1 a.m. and commit the murders there. But Exley later learns that she stretched the truth a bit there. Maybe not lied, but like she was a little out of it. She's like, yeah, they could have left at midnight. I don't really yeah, know. All I cared about is that they get arrested. That's that's I wanted them to suffer and be punished for what they did to me because they wouldn't have been punished if they were just charged with raping a Mexican girl. So I wanted them punished. So if they were fingered for murdering a bunch of people, including a cop, good with me. So and then that kind of opens, reopens the case again, even though uh, the Night Owl murders and the solving of the Night Owl murders kind of made Exley's career. He wants to open that back up because he learned maybe it wasn't these guys. And again, like kind of like his sense of justice, which is the number one thing he ostensibly cares about. Uh, kind of bumping up against his ambition to be a great member of the LAPD like his father was. You know, this case made him and set him on the course to be like his father, but it also may not have actually been justice carried out. So it's like conflict there. It's the two things he wants coming to a head. And that's when he uh, brings Vincennes in and they uh, start to peel back the layers of the case and learn that it goes all the way to the top. Um, Lieutenant. <laughs> lieutenant great great line read from a creepy guy um and uh i i said that the opening half hours got a lot of details a lot of different characters names crimes locations and i do appreciate how it kind of funnels and the story layers are kind of stripped back and like one by one people die <laughs> so like there there are fewer and fewer characters and fewer and fewer storylines and uh, it all kind of goes to it kind of funnels into one spot in an in, in inevitable spot, maybe, but um, I like it. Yeah. Anything else about the plot we want to talk about? Just a small thing. Um, yeah. Sid Hutchins in the book dies way sooner and he gets dismembered. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. Um, also, Lynn Bracken does not pop up until after halfway through the novel. Hmm. Um, sorry, just small notes there about no it's good can we use that as a segue actually to go into discussing the lynn bracken the romance aspect of the film possibly and even we can touch on the kim basinger performance all at once 
let me just let me just say the words Rolo Tomasi, and then we can talk about <laughs> it, if that's okay. I love that so much. That device. Um, in case it's been a while since seen the movie, uh, at one point Jack Vincennes and Exley are talking, and it's when Exley is trying to recruit Jack Vincennes into investigating the Night Owl murders again surreptitiously, kind of on the down low because they can't trust anybody. And Jack Vincennes questions him like, "Why would you do that? This case made you." And um, Exley says, because of Rolo Tomasi. And he says, his father was shot six times by a purse snatcher, and the guy got away. And so when Exley was a kid, he said, it was Rolo Tomasi who did it. He just gave a name to this anonymous person, and Rolo Tomasi is like the stand-in for the guy that gets away with it. And so Exley says, I became a cop because of Rolo Tomasi, you know? to bring to to catch the guy that gets away with it Uh, yeah do you do you remember then what the exchange is right after that you refer to the fact then sends doesn't remember why he yeah he says why'd you become a cop i don't remember yeah and i think it's another really great performance bit from spacey one of the things i think spacey is doing in this that in some ways it's very much a spacey performance and then like he doesn't disappear into it but something i think he does really really well that he's not doesn't always do is he's very laconic and he's very there's a lot of self-loathing going on under there he acts like uh i could be here as an actor but there's a lot of like self-loathing that rides underneath it and i think the reason plot wise that he dies and doesn't make it till the end is he doesn't remember both both bud and exley have different senses of duty and different senses of justice and both of them are about reacting to what their father left in them am i going to become my father or not bud hits lynn Right? Yeah. His his father's in there. His father comes out. And then, not to get too far ahead, but the climax, and I won't spoil, but it's it's the decision that Exley needs to do of, are you going to be your dad or not? And Vincennes, it's it's always just about him. So then, uh, as you alluded, Jack Vincennes does not make it to the movie. He does not make it to Act 3 because the turn at the end of Act 2 is Jack Vincennes kind of not quite uncovering the whole mystery, but maybe three quarters of it. And instead of taking it to Exley, he takes it to Captain Dudley Smith, James Cromwell, who, dun 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 dun, is actually heading up all this nefarious activity. Because in the crime vacuum left when Mickey Cohen went away, Dudley Smith takes over all the crime. And so he shoots Jack Vincennes in the heart. And then as Jack, Vin- Jack Vincennes' last words are, Rolo Tomasi. And then he gives a slight smile. And then I think the next scene, which is talking about, you know, Jack Vincennes' murder, uh, Dudley Smith pulls Exley aside and said, what does he say? He says, Jack Vincennes says he was working on something and came up with the name Rolo Tomasi. Does that name mean anything to you? And, okay, first of all, number one, I watched this movie with uh, my wife and my father-in-law like a year or so ago. And even though Katie had seen the movie, I guess she forgot that detail because when Dudley Smith says Rolo Tomasi to Exley, she gasped. Like, this is the biggest gasp you've ever heard in your life. Like, because <gasps> it is like a gas moment. And Guy Pierce plays that so perfectly because, like, his jaw kind of hardens a little bit because, like, internally, Exley's probably freaking the fuck out at that right. moment, but he has to play it completely straight, completely blank. Like, no, I haven't he- ever heard that name before, even though you just revealed an awful lot of shit to me. I have to pretend like you didn't. And uh, it's really good. And that kind of blows the case open. And, like, just this, this setup payoff of Rolla Tomasi is. Mwah. Chef's kiss, and I love it. And Guy Pierce, to to the Guy Pierce point, he's so good 
in this movie, I think, because like I said, I hated him the first like two or three times I watched it. And I read he actually, when he read the script, he hated the character. And you, you do end up sort of like being on his side, but he's, he does that really nice thing that I think is important for this film and the ambiguities in this film, where at the beginning, he's like, yeah, you kind of do want your police to be like that, but he's such a, just a sniveling ass. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, that you're like, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to punch you in the face, but you are actually probably the most morally sound cop at the beginning of the movie. He's the guy that you're, you're, you feel that you, any of the other characters, and they do kind of, when he's in the room being interviewed by the DA, the chief, and Captain Smith, he's the guy that you kind of have to sigh and go, yeah, he's mm-hmm. our guy. Like, you got <laughs> to give it to him. He's the guy we need. He's the future of the force, which I think Smith references when he's talking to uh, White, obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. early in the film. But ultimately, Exley does. Uh, the first conversation he has with Captain Smith, Captain Smith asks him, would you be willing to beat a confession of a suspect you need to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer might, you know, whatever? And Exley says definitively, no. And then at the very, very end, the last thing he does is shoot that man, Dudley Smith, a hardened criminal he learns in the back. It's a great, that's a great payoff. And also, like, I feel like there are a few situations that a movie could have your main character shoot an unarmed person in the back and, like, the audience be like, fuck yeah. But this was one of those situations. Because I said fuck yeah when he shot Captain Smith. And it's it's a classic, reliable screenwriting thing to introduce oh, yeah. a, I would never blank. And when, mm-hmm. I, when I watch movies, especially yeah. in the first act, and they're like, oh, I would never do this. I'm like, in an hour, you're going to be doing that. You know, and even though you can you can see it coming, it it becomes very satisfying. Yeah, but okay, uh, Ken, you're about to talk about something that's maybe less satisfying, more like maybe maybe my least favorite part of the movie. But go ahead. Yes, well, yeah, it's exactly right. I'm I'm with you there. the The romantic subplot between uh, Bud White and Lynn Bracken. I get I get that there's an there's a certain element of it that's essential to the plot to help move it along. It just feels a bit forced, um, and it's one of the. It, it doesn't. It doesn't really land well for me when on rewatch. Each time, I'm just kind of taken out of the film a little bit when I get to those scenes and that play in the back and forth. And part part I, of it is because it just doesn't feel like I said natural. I think the Bud White Lynn Bracket part is okay, partially because Russell Crowe's charismatic, even when he's playing like a hardened loose cannon cop who's not really in touch with his emotions i think he's still charismatic talking to kim basinger um i don't really buy guy pierce sleeping with kim basinger like that's really out of nowhere and like that bumps me every time i watch it the fact that like exley is prepared to sleep with a prostitute who he knows to be number one working with some really bad people and number two Sleeping with Bud White, and who Bud White is very fond of, the loose cannon violent guy. And then Exley says, you know what's a good idea? Sleeping with this woman right now. Give me a fucking break. The th- like, the thing, that, that's the biggest thing. The thing I have, and this is where uh, being a fan of film noir, you're, I guess, perhaps expecting something. Um, you're expecting characters to fit a certain role, even if the film isn't 100% hitting all of the beats of, of a noir. Um, the fact is, she doesn't really... She doesn't really effectively come off as a true femme fatale, perhaps because for so much of the film, when most of the time we see Lynn Bracken, she shares most of her screen time with with Russell Crowe and Bud, as Bud White, right? 
most of her scenes are with him and she allows the vulnerable side of herself to show there's no she she's let the facade down when she's with him and a woman who by this point she's been doing this for quite a while she even mentions to him that she's figuring a couple more years and she's going to go home um she's going to leave la and yet she seems to place a trust in him almost immediately and allows all of her all of her guard down around him and then she doesn't really play too much of the game that you would expect from a, a woman in her role to play with bud and exley other than like you said there's that scene with exley which just none of it really works or makes a ton of sense we we already we don't know yet to that point that sid how how involved sid is with pierce patchett and and um, smith and stuff but um yeah it just it's uneven I'm just not well, buying into it completely. I think in that moment that Lynn Brackett is was probably instructed to seduce Ed Exley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, part of Smith's plot is to get Bud White to kill Exley, and he does that by having Lynn sleep with Exley. But I just don't buy Exley falling for right. it. You know? well, there's, Maybe that's my he leaves, he leaves Patchett, right? And Patchett picks up the phone. We see Patchett picking up the phone as he's leaving. You can assume he's mm-hmm. calling two people, right? Well, he calls Sid, we know. And he's calling Lynn. Something that works for me about the Bud and Lynn relationship, I think there's there's two things that work really well. The their first meeting, Bud thinks he knows her because he thinks that she's just like all the other women that he kind of comes in and protects. And she goes um toe to toe with him verbally about, oh, is there's blood on your shirt? Do you enjoy doing that? Oh, how many men have you killed? And he tries to throw back at her, not as many men as you've effed today. And she's like, actually, it was just two. So it's even like this coarse way of talking to me is not going to intimidate me either. And she's a woman in, she, she's not a victim. She's a woman in possession of kind of her own sexual powers and her own sexual prowess. She's more of an agent than he thinks that she is. Um, she even wasn't operated on that much that's all her just her hair is different to make her look like veronica lake right um so her her kind of self-possession there is something that i think is a very attractive to him and disarming to him and then the scene that i I find it hard to watch because he but when he comes up and he's like you know you effed exley He's Russell Crowe's pacing around out there like a like a boxer before a match or a cage animal. And he's so pouty in the rain there. This guy the whole time that just has a stare and a few words. He has to say it twice. You effed him, didn't you? And then he like it's on an exhale. He's like, you fucked him like that, you know, and it's um, it's it's a really nice moment, I think, in his performance there where he's completely reduced to all everything is going to all, the only thing he can result back on is that impulse he has from his father, which is an impulse of violence. I do love Russell Crowe's performance in this, like his stare. He's kind of like this thousand yard stare a lot of the time, like he's got really piercing eyes and like they're kind of a little dead behind the eyes a little bit. And like that just gives me. You don't want these eyes set on you kind of vibe, you know, because the fist will come right behind the eyes. As Dudley says, I wouldn't trade spots with Exley for all the whiskey in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I will say, I will say, I, I do like Russell Crowe in the film. And I do like that scene you're talking about, TJ, quite a bit. But part of me feels like that relationship and the way they set it up is, that's the payoff, right? That scene and Russell Crowe's performance in that scene is the best payoff. Because as to your point, 
She is an independent woman. And more importantly, she's a survivor. Given the business she's in, given the, the line of work she's in, the people she interacts with, she's a survivor. And she deals with people all the time who are two-faced. They are, they're, they're, they're always hiding something. You can't trust anyone. The part of me that always pauses when watching the film is how quickly she lets down her guard with White. And I'm not sure it's earned. If you watch the film, it just, I, it's a disconnect between the character I am led to believe she is and what suddenly we have in her interactions with Bud White and how she seems so willing to open herself up to him um, and, and be vulnerable. Because again, this is a woman. And vice versa. And yeah, and vice versa. But again, this is a woman who's, I, by all accounts, including that scene in the, the liquor store, this is a woman who survived by not being vulnerable around people. She's closed off. That's how she survives and how she succeeds in her line of work. Unlike the woman in the back of the car with David Strait Aaron outside the liquor store, she's still alive. Lynn is still kicking. Yeah. So speaking of Kim Basinger, do you want to talk about the Oscars? Is there anything else you want to cover in the movie? I, I still got some stuff from the movie if we can... Let's go for it. Yeah, yeah. Bring it up. Okay. Let me get to the just small things that are completely irrelevant, but they're TJ thoughts while we watch. They're real, real quick. I do love the bit. She is Lana Turner. How was I supposed to know? So it's like the one bit of humor that. in this, and I think <laughs> it, it works really yeah. well. Oh, but it, um, he nails it too. It's, yeah. It's perfectly, yeah. perfectly positioned. Um, I love that Loeb is cutting his nose hairs. That's just a really nice detail. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and shout out to Gwenda Deacon. Um, I don't know who this woman is. Apparently she's in Terminator 2. She plays Mrs. Lafferty. It's a weird performance, and I really like her in this, where she's like, don't go looking in there. Something stinks in there. Yeah, she's great. Um, one thing I don't like about Leffitz and all of that, there's two instances in this movie that have to be producer notes, because there's a new bit of information we get, and then we get this like split screen like superimposition. Yeah. Yes. And it's just a little bit like... Hey, dumb audience, remember this person? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's what you're talking about is when Lefferts? Lefferts. Susan Lefferts. Lefferts. Susan Lefferts is on the slab in the morgue being identified by her mother, and then Bud White walks in, and you get a split screen of Lefferts on the slab, and Lefferts when we first met her in the back of the car with the bandaged face when Bud White met her. I think it's important to connect that dot, because, like... She looks different on the slab than she did in yes, the car, she, so I thought it was helpful. Okay, I think okay. It's, I think it is essential because exactly because of the fact last time we saw her, part of part of her face is covered up. Remember, and yeah. given the fact that all we know as Bud White is walking in, this woman can't identify the woman who is possibly her daughter on the slab, and mm-hmm. actually she looks different. Yeah, yeah. Exley just knows her name and is just trying to help this woman figure out whether they can identify her. Yeah. But go on. What's the other? Um, I, I think oh. I know what the other issue you might have is. But go ahead. Oh, not necessarily issues. Just these are all just like small notes. Um, I liked uh, Crow's face again, where Exley says that they found Lynn. Someone worked her over. She wouldn't say who, and you get that reaction shot from him. That's just yeah. utter guilt. Um, I think is is a really it's he who worked her over. Yeah. Um, that, that last bit, we kind of hit on this already, but the climactic decision that Exley has to have, are you, uh, Dudley says, are you going to shoot me or arrest me? And then he turns away and he says, hold up your badge. So they know you're a policeman. 
which again mm-hmm. drives home that idea because they wouldn't know other i mean it's a very practical thing but they wouldn't know from what you've done from what we've done from how we behave you have to sh- you have to show badge of honor literally right you have you have to show that um and then he smokes him um something else i love there's a great line from uh dudley where he says i think to bud don't start trying to do the right thing boyo you haven't had the practice that's great he says that to jack vincent oh there you go okay right before he shoots him yeah um well just as an aside i do love the use of boyo in this film it's the one time he consistently drops that irish accent Mm mm-hmm I'm, I'm I'm here for it. Just, and Laddie, just <laughs> the yeah. boyo is my I think the best little bit from. Spain. Yeah, um, that's all the like small little notes I have. I have one last like TJ's final thought point to make, but I'm not there yet. I will add one more thing. It's something that I don't really I, I haven't thought about except maybe the last time I think I watched it, and this time I I jotted down some notes. Under within the the romance between Bud and Lynn, they go to the movies at one point. And this is the this is this helps date the film in addition to the newspapers that we see. But this is supposed to be 1953. They go to see Roman Holiday, which is a film essentially about escapism, and it's escapism from a perceived fairy tale. She's a princess. Audrey Hepburn plays a princess who wants out. She at least for a day, she wants out of that that glass that 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 snow globe that she's living within which most people would think oh being a princess being royalty that's that must be a fairy tale in the film la confidential lynn looks like a movie star she's literally compared to veronica lake she's a veronica lake lookalike and so the idea that there's this beautiful woman she's you know been successful in her very specific field in hollywood um and yet she also wants out she wants that escape hatch. She wants the opportunity. So I just love that little bit, uh, that little note. It both times uh, uh, places the film in a certain time period, but also speaks to the characters who are sitting there watching the film, particularly Lynn. Um, it's just a little thing, but uh, the last couple times I've watched it, I do love that scene and that addition. TJ, what's your last note? I wrote just a short, well, we'll decide if it's short. What did I think this movie was about? I wrote this. It's about illusions of justice in the U.S. and the institutions that get in the way, which are the same ones that are supposed to ensure it. They let everyone down, the ones who are supposed to be protected and the ones who are supposed to protect. You can't be a good cop or at least an ideal one. Um, I think this movie is about... Uh, I love movies that are about America and make big statements about America. And, or about Los Angeles, make big statements about Los Angeles. Well, and and Patchett, in part of Patchett's plan, is he's he's moving the highway, and they talk about Western expansion. And you, you can no longer Westernly expand here, and this is the end of the road. This is the end of a certain ideal and the end of a certain era. Um, and I... And, I think it was. I, I think it's very smart in that way, and I think it's smart to transpose this into the '90s um, to make yeah. this in the yeah. '90s. Um. Good picture, real good picture. <laughs> Oscars, yeah, Oscars. This was nominated for nine Academy Awards: Best Picture, Best Director for Kurt Hansen, Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger, Best Adapted Screenplay for Brian Helgeland and Kurt Hansen. Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Dramatic Score from Jerry Goldsmith, and Best Sound. Uh, this won Best Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger and Best Adapted Screenplay for Helgeland and Hansen, and it lost all of the other seven to Titanic. Titanic won 
all of the other seven categories. Uh, TJ, do you want to say, say something about Jerry Goldsmith's score earlier I, on? I love the score in this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. And it's so um, flexible. And the work it's doing at the beginning is setting that sort of Sid Hutchins, like, this is L.A. And then as it as the wheels begin coming off the plot, it picks up some, like, Bernard Herrmann, Ennio Morricone, like, the 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 deeper piano i'm not a music person but that like you know of uh off off the piano and it begins to sort of echo morricone's score from the untouchables mm. um it's 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 sort of like classic but also multifaceted and i think it's i think it's excellent i love the score it is excellent but it for me is a little bit overshadowed by another jerry goldsmith score for a movie called chinatown Jerry Goldsmith did the movie, did the music for Chinatown, which I think is like in my head the definitive noir soundtrack. The <laughs> yeah, like so Goldsmith, he. It's interesting you mentioned Bernard Herrmann actually, TJ, because um, Goldsmith only wins one Oscar nomination on eighteen nominations. He wins in 19- one Oscar win in eighteen nominations. One, he won win for eighteen nominations, but he. He wins for 1976's The Omen, which means I, he beats out Bernard Herrmann's Taxi Driver score. Right? Oh, and, oh, that's tough. And, that's real tough. And of the other f- films, he's, other scores he's nominated, he's got not only Chinatown, but he's got Patton. He's got Alien. He's got uh, all of the Star Trek films. He's got Mulan, Planet of the, 1968 Planet of the Apes. And in 1997, in addition to this, he's also got Air Force One, which is a pretty banging uh, uh, action score. Um, and yet, the most important Jerry Goldsmith score of all time is, of course, Congo. Rudy, 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 Rudy. I'm serious. I'm serious. You kidding me? For those of you who I could run a thousand miles right now if you played that music in my ears for those all thousand miles. For those of you who can't see us, which is everyone, Josh is even wearing a fucking Notre Dame shirt right now. <laughs> Can you not drop f bombs if you're gonna make me bleep out the f bombs? You're just giving me more more work right now. That was the goal there because you made us listen to Rudy. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Uh, so this movie's two Oscar wins: best supporting actress, best adapted screenplay. Let's talk about them. Best Adapted Screenplay, it beat out Donnie Brasco, The Sweet Hereafter, Wag the Dog, and The Wings of the Dove. I've only seen one of those, which is Wag the Dog, and um, I am so fucking set on this winning Best Adapted Screenplay. I have no complaints at all. Um, TJ, as you alluded earlier, from what I hear and from what you said, uh, the book is a lot more complicated than the movie. It has like eight storylines, and the movie reduced those down to like three storylines, and uh, from what I read about the adapt- adaptation process, uh, Brian Helgeland and Hansen basically just cut every scene that did not include one of the three leads and then figured out how to make the movie work, cutting all that material and like try to find the connective tissue and fill in the gaps. And um, my sense is people who have read the book are very impressed by the movie. And you seem to be one of those people. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot more Inez Soto in the book. Uh, there's mm. flashbacks to Exley's dad. Um, there's a lot more Mickey Cohen and Mickey Cohen's bulldog, which is named Mickey Cohen Jr. Like there's, <laughs> there's just a lot of stuff in there that work, can work in a novel when you got 500 pages. Yeah. But the fact that 
they were able to find what they found out of that without really inventing a whole lot is yeah pretty incredible i think yeah and like i uh, a letterbox review i read, I read earlier alluded like the movie kind of unfolds like a novel how one scene really leads to the next mm-hmm. one and um I'm really not having read any of the novel. I'm very impressed with the adaptation, and other people seem to be really impressed with the adaptation. And and I th- I feel like the film feels kind of epic and sprawling, but it gets a lot done in a rather modest runtime. It's it's what two twelve, which isn't a, it isn't a short movie. But when you I mean we've been talking about it for a long time, and when you really unfold the plot, it feels like it's a three hour film. Um, yeah, you know, and like I, I mean this is a compliment. I think that. The story seems extremely complex, but it's actually really simple, you mm. know? And I mean that in a good way, because mm-hmm. the way it all comes together is very satisfying. Mm-hmm. The other Oscar win for this movie, Kim Basinger for Best Supporting Actress. I feel differently about this Oscar win than I do about the adapted screenplay Oscar win. So she was up against Joan Cusack in in and out Minnie Driver in Goodwill Hunting, Julianne Moore in Boogie Nights, and Gloria Stewart's Old Bones in Titanic. <laughs> Old Lady Rose. Um, <laughs> TJ, you and I have like texted previously, like long before we ever had this podcast, about this Oscar win. <laughs> you we're watching LA Confidential a few years ago and texting me about it. And like, I think both of us are kind of puzzled by Kim Basinger's win for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, I think she's good in this, but as I alluded earlier, she's kind of closed off. She is, like, ostensibly playing the Spider-Woman in the noir story, or maybe she's not. And she's kind of, like, playing things close to the vest the way that David Strathairn's character is also doing. Um, And, like, her performance is more vibes than, like, acting prowess, maybe. And not that acting prowess doesn't factor into vibes, but, like, her costuming, her hairstyling, like, that's more I think about when I think about Lynn Brackett as opposed to Kim Basinger's performance of Lynn Brackett. And... No disrespect, but, like, I've seen four of the performances nominated in the category. I've not seen Joan Cusack in and out, but I've seen the other four. And, like, if I was ranking these, Kim Basinger's four out of four. She's not even the second, my second or third choice. The fact that Julianne Moore did not win for Boogie Nights is very upsetting to me personally. What do you guys think? Ken, what do you think? It disturbs me that you... You've got Gloria Stewart higher than Kim Basinger, but we'll talk about that in the next I episode. I absolutely have Gloria we Stewart higher about, than Kim Basinger. Oh, yes, I do. going to dump her ass over the side of the... <laughs> dreams. <laughs> I can still smell the fresh paint. Yeah, yeah yes. that's exactly... She's great in that. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you can't smell anything, um, old lady. <laughs> I've seen... That's mothballs that you're smelling. I, I, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, talking about Mini Driver. Um, I think, TJ, I think you said you saw In-N-Out maybe, or maybe yeah, not. I yeah, yeah. I've seen all of these performances. I agree completely with you that Julianne Moore is the standout. Even I mean, we're, we're Amber Waves, baby. Yeah, we're coming two and a half decades later, and Julianne Moore's performance is is the standout here. So it, it's a little odd. I like Kim Basinger's performance in this film. Admittedly, as I've already alluded to, I don't particularly love that whole subplot to this film. So the fact that it's not working completely for me does ding her performance in my memory and in my opinion when I go back and watch it. I like her in the film quite a bit. I think she does a a very good job. I just don't love the part of the film she's she's in and the role she plays as much. So that mm-hmm. it's just a, there's a, there's that disconnect like I said here. So um I don't think it's a particular it's an overtly offensive win by any means. We can go through the we can go through the the history of the Oscars and find other performances that are egregious 
but um, particularly in the best supporting actress category, yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough one almost every year for the Academy. But and and yeah, we'll we'll hopefully get around to talking about Boogie Nights at some point. But Julianne Moore, uh, yeah, on shout the out Patreon, to, I think. Yeah, shout yeah. out to shout out to Julianne's performance in Boogie Nights. I I did a brief thought experiment because uh, Julianne Moore eventually would win her Oscar for Best Actress for Still Alice in 2014, and that kind of I, I didn't see that movie. I hear it's very good. I hear she's very good in it. I actually read the screenplay, and honestly, the screenplay upset me. So I imagine the movie would also upset me. Um, but that was like kind of a it's her time situation where like the second that movie premiered at the fall festivals, everyone's like, oh, Julianne Moore's winning Best Actress this year. That's great. And then six months later, she won Best Actress. Um, it would have been interesting had she already had an Oscar for Boogie Nights, then that may have been more of an open race in 2014. And Rosamund Pike could have won Best Actress for Gone Girl. That would have been really fun. She would have been my pick that year. You know, domino effects of Kim Basinger's Oscar winning LA Confidential. TJ, what do you think? You know, I because of our previous texting and my being vexed at her win, every time I watch this movie, which is like two times since we've texted that, I think, I, I look really carefully for things in her performance. And when you look, you can find stuff that you like. So it's grown on me a bit. I'm still not going to be like a, woo! Um, <laughs> but out of those five, I'd probably put her second. You really don't like Goodwill Hunting, as we learned last week. So I assume you're kind of low on the mini driver. I was... I was so impressed by Mini Drive this most recent watch. I know we talked about Goodwill Hunting last week, but I was like, man, she's actually really, really good in this. Um, regardless, uh, Kim Basinger won Best Actress here, or Best Supporting Actress. Um, that's kind of it. That's, that's kind of all I got. Um, I, I guess I should ask, you know, should this have been nominated for Best Picture? And I think the answer is an emphatic yes from all of us. Um, I think this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I love it, everything about it. Uh, so comparing this to other movies I've seen that are that was nominated for Best Picture, this is up there for sure. Um, I guess one thing... Did it make your top 100? Uh, let me check it in the top 100. You guys vamp and talk about like, the movie, your yeah. final thoughts and that kind of stuff, and I'll look at it. Yeah, um, I think it's, yeah, it's a slam dunk for a nomination. I'm a little bit surprised, given that it wasn't such a huge box office hit and that its star power was like Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, and Kim Basinger, that it hit as hard as it did because it also is not a traditional Oscar movie. You know, it's not out of Africa. It's not the color purple. Some of these movies we've talked about that are like clearly made to um, kind of be sprawling epics or topic films. It's kind of just a really, really well done crime drama. It is. Um, and a movie that Josh has alluded to this type of movie before where I think it works on the surface and it works if you want to dig into it. It's also another entry in a subgenre that I'm I'm stealing. Such a dad movie. <laughs> Such a dad movie. Tim Keeley loves LA Confidential. I'll have to ask my dad what he thinks of LA Confidential. I assume he likes it. Yeah. You know, but uh I'll have to ask him. This did not make my top one hundred, but that's an oversight. This should absolutely be my top one hundred. It's a, yes. it's eighty two yeah. on my uh top one hundred. Oh. Um okay. this is a film that doesn't pass the Bechtel test, unfortunately. Yeah. This is um, well, there's one female character who's a sex worker, there are, or there's a second female character and she's a rape victim, and then the third female character who's the mother of a murdered sex worker. Yeah, <laughs> so, and then tough. the rest are all like assistants and secretaries in the police station. Like, you know, women don't play a particularly large role in the film. And as I've as we've already discussed, the the female lead is not necessarily the best part of the film. 
Um, so it, unfortunately, yeah, it's a film aimed more at men. Not that women wouldn't appreciate a good uh, noir, but this one, uh, yeah, not really bringing the ladies into uh, into the scope of the, the project. Would you like that to be your final thought? The final thought of the episode, Ken, is that this is a good movie, but not for the ladies. That would be that would be terrifying, <laughs> wouldn't it? Because I just said it's eighty-two on my personal top one hundred, <laughs> but it's 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 not a particularly great film uh, for women in cinema, right? Um, Ken's top one hundred is comprised strictly of alpha male films. Oh, sure, approved yeah. by Jordan Peterson. Any, <laughs> ooh, let's <laughs> let's cut that. <laughs> ooh. Um, I don't know if I'm going to cut that. I might leave that in. We'll see. Uh, I'm joking, by the way. I'm very much joking for the record. Uh, I, I I love this film. I think we I think all three of us seem to have a personal connection with the film, which is nice to hear that we've we've settled on a best picture nominee that we all still love and rave about. Um, there are fewer and far far between than I would imagine that one that all three of us really like. Yeah, yeah, and this one clearly this one wins us all over, and that that tickles me to no end. But uh, yeah, it's just a nice watch. Every time I come back to it, even if it's not as frequent as again as I said earlier, I realized it's been a few years since I, I last watched it. Um, it's always a nice rewatch, and there's always little things. This is one of those movies. There's always something to kind of hook onto each time you watch it. That you just kind of love, you could just kind of embrace and want to talk about the next yeah. time you you discuss it with somebody. Um, so, yeah, always always happy to revisit this one. As am I. I was so freaking excited this week just to to watch it and talk about it. Great movie, you know. So, uh, circling back a bit, speaking of movies that may or may not be for the ladies, next week we got a movie that. Uh, a lot of women saw and liked, and a lot of men saw and liked. I'm a man that saw and liked it. Loved it, in fact. It's called Titanic. Written and directed by one James Cameron. Big Jim. So next week, we're getting wet. We're getting wet. We're getting cold. And we're going on a journey with Big Jim to the bottom of the ocean. So many things And I'm very excited. With, that, with everything you just said. I think everything I said was extremely accurate, and I would I would challenge you to pull apart anything that I said. You are challenging us. I'm coming. I'm coming guns a-blazing. Uh, I'm excited for the discussion next week because we have, I believe, disparate opinions of the movie Titanic <laughs> and strong opinions of the movie Titanic. So tune in for that. This is one we all love. I don't think we all love Titanic, but some of us do. How about that? Do you hear, so, do you hear that? That's Ken sharpening his knives. <laughs> uh, please follow us on Twitter at Serious Film PPL, on TikTok at Serious Film People Podcast. You can email us, SeriousFilmPeople at gmail.com. Uh, Patreons, patreon.com slash serious film people slash serious film podcast. I don't know. I should write that down at some point, but you can find it. Whatever. And uh, thank you for listening. Tune in again next week for Titanic. It'll be a doozy. And goodbye. Have a great week. Peace. And remember, some men get the world, others get ex-hookers and trips to Arizona. We all know what Ken's doing. <laughs> <laughs>